Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collectibles, entrepreneurship, and technology. Wrong order. Collectibles, technology, entrepreneurship. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, uh, Zakil, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. And with me, as always, is one of our Chris's today, Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tin Street. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going all right. How's your week going for you, Zakil? I can finally go outside again. Haven't been outside in four oh, and a half yeah. days. <laughs> can, is when the I'm, air actually breathable now? It's not toxic, so that's great. Alrighty. <laughs> um, <laughs> but today is another episode in our Community Spotlight series where we interview and uh, deep dive on many of the other hobbyists in the collectible world. And today we have Chris Martin from Conviction Gaming on the cast. How's it going, man? Hey, great. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, we're super excited. I know I've been a fan of your podcast series and podcast series and conviction gaming for a while now. You guys, um, I think last fall we're doing heavy, heavy coverage as you, I mean, you continue to do so, but last fall you were doing heavy coverage of kind of spoiler season and, you know, really going hard in the content, which is where I think I originally found you and I've been following you ever since. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a big piece of what got conviction off the ground is just my general passion and knowledge about EDH specifically and kind of EDH finance for spoiler season, being able to identify those uh, spiking cards or, you know, the cards that are going to spike as spoilers get revealed pretty rapidly. So, yeah, man. Awesome. So the first question that we always ask to our um, guests is, I think the question that most people mm -hmm. you know, are interested in knowing is, what brought you to Magic? Uh, what was your first experience in Magic? And then how did uh, you get into the finance element of it? Yeah, so the kind of quick version, uh, the abbreviated version, I could probably talk about that for five hours or so, but I'll just give the quick uh, <laughs> synopsis. I, I grew up kitty corner to one of my best friends, still, still to this day, one of my best friends, Nick. Uh, but one of my uh, best man at my wedding and so on and so forth. He he and I met when we were 10 and uh, I'll never forget it. He walked across the street. I was throwing a, a tennis ball against my stairs. I was a, I played sports growing up, baseball and, and other sports. And um, he came over and he's like, hey, I don't really play sports, but I want to be your friend because I don't have any other friends here. I just moved here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I just moved here too. This is great. And he turned in, he turned out to be more interested in video games and, you know, uh, card games and things of that nature and so he introduced me to magic shortly thereafter we met and you know i i would say within probably six months or so he had started to introduce me first to force me into pokemon and then right after that forced me into magic and i say forced it wasn't really forced i, I pure pressure is a better word for it but <laughs> uh, I, yeah i was i was the only kid at the lunch table that didn't have pokemon cards and so at some point that that changed nick gave me a bunch of commons and stuff i remember the first card he ever gave me was persian i think i still have it somewhere and um this is just random but that's how i got into card games and magic quickly became something i was actually really interested in because of the kind of the uh mathematical analytical side of the game itself yeah. we didn't really understand the rules at that age i mean you figure we were 10 by the time we got into magic like seriously and started buying packs we maybe were 11 or 12 and so we didn't really understand the rules of the game yet but what we did understand was how fun it was to get the cool monsters and whatever else and 
uh, the story I always tell people that really got me hooked on magic is that we went to our local grocery store. It's called Jewel here in the Midwest. And uh, <laughs> they used to sell trading cards and Pokemon and magic were, were available. And so we would, we would go up there with our $10 allowance or whatever, and we'd each buy three packs because that was the deal, three for 10. And I bought three Urza's packs, uh, Urza's Saga packs. And in the first pack, pulled a uh it wasn't i'm sorry it wasn't three urza sagas packs it was three urza's packs from the block one of each urza's Le legacy destiny mm -hmm. and saga and the saga pack had guy's, cr guy's cradle in it and mm -hmm. i was like what the hell is this rare it's a land like this is stupid and i put it aside and then i got a phyrexian plague lord in the urza's i think that's destiny if i remember correctly and i was like super excited about that because that was like a cool monster right um, and that, that's like my story. I that very well. I still have those cards to this day. I don't actually remember what the third rare was that I got. I, I, I have no idea, but um, I still have both of the, the guy's cradle and the Phyrexian Plague Lord to this day, which is kind of neat. And um, yeah, just kind of got hooked from there. Uh, what took me into finance would be fast forwarding. I have to fast forward, uh, geez, probably about a decade. So 10 years later, I was in college and it was towards the back end of my my college career, uh, we, we continue to play magic with my group of friends that, you know, actually grew from Nick and I to more people. And we uh, started playing, you know, we'd have a stack of four that would play two on twos or free for alls, all sorts of stuff growing up and a lot of just kitchen table casual stuff. But we all assembled collections over the years. And as they all kind of got out of magic, I continued to still enjoy it enough to play it. And, and so we all kind of separated different ways for college and whatnot. But when we would come back over the summers, we would still pick up our cards and occasionally get some games in. And my junior year of college, I I actually had been out of it the longest. They all continued to play because they were all still local to Chicago where I grew up. Uh, they didn't go far enough away where they like couldn't see each other. Whereas I was about four hours south in Springfield, Illinois for college. So I would only see them like periodically except for summers and they amassed more cards than I had. So I was like, wow, I need to catch up a little bit. So I started buying cards again. And what actually happened is I, I amassed, rather than buying individual cards, I decided to buy a collection that I saw on eBay. And um, it, one thing led to the next and I realized, wait a second, I got this collection and you know, I started looking at the cards. It's like, man, I could have, you know, there's like a, there was, I remember there was a vampiric tutor in this collection that I bought and some other kind of iconic cards that, you know, are more iconic now than they were at that point in time. But I was like, wow, this, I, this vampiric tutor was like $30 online. And, and I just got it in this collection that I only paid 200 bucks for and started realizing, wait a second, this collection is worth way more than I ended up paying for it. Right? Like if I sell these all as singles, so that ended up leading to this kind of like, wait a second, I can hustle this and start actually making this into a side business. And so I, I, I basically started to investigate that more on eBay specifically and would find collections on there that I would essentially price out to the best of my ability based on the photos and the, you know, the description. And I would buy those. And you know, it started small. It was a couple hundred dollars here, a couple hundred dollars there. I'd turn around, I'd flip those cards either back on eBay or locally to player, you know, players or LGSs, whatever. Um, next thing I knew I was doing it and, you know, junior, senior year, my specifically senior year of college, I probably flipped something like $20,000 in sales. If I were to guess, I, I don't remember the number exactly, but 
um, it, it turned into something pretty meaningful and, and that, you know, the rest is history, I guess. So nice. Yeah, you're giving me, you're giving me flashbacks to when I was younger. We used to, we used to like go to the mall and it was, it was hockey cards for my family. Cause you know, Canadian kind of Canadian bread here, but like we used to always get like those, those packs and yeah, I, I still love, I think my brother still has like that tub of cards that we used to always open up together. So <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting hard nostalgia here. listening to that story. I'll have to, I could like send you guys a photo. I still have my tub of my Pokemon cards. It's the same tub that I got when I was 10 years yeah, old. So yeah. I, I, yeah. It's been through, been through hell and back. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's traveled quite a bit with me, particularly when I was a kid. It's, but anyway, um, it's, it's loaded with stickers too. That's the other thing. So, um, yeah, but I mean, it's something that, again, just kind of piggybacking off that, that, that I personally, I, I really appreciate, uh, I appreciate about your content is the, 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 the constant balance of being like a player and a financier. And, and, and I, I know you to this day, you still kind of have to find that balance. And I, I'm curious as to what your thoughts on that and how you kind of, uh, find the enjoyment, uh, in both, uh, while still kind of, uh, I, I, I'm not sure how to properly phrase the question, but I feel like you need the right amount of both. So I'm, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that balance. Yeah. I, first of all, I just want to say when, when we were prepping for the cast, I was like super excited that you addressed this. Cause I honestly, I didn't even think about it, but it is, it's like an eternal struggle in my mind with magic. I, I, I have a very hard time flipping there you could think of it as like wearing two hats one hat being the player side and one hat being the finance side and they 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 overlap so so much when you think about just you know the the basics of supply and demand and understanding economics and that side of the you know finance world and then applying that to be like wait a second i really like smothering tithe i'm going to play this card in every edh deck maybe i should go buy 20 copies of this card and the next thing you know it's worth you know, four times what you paid it, pay for it. And so um, I, I, I think the applications from one to the other, it, it definitely goes one way. It's being a player applies itself to being a finance. I'm sorry, I, I said one way. It goes two ways. Um, being a player and then applying it to finance really, really just requires you to have a basic understanding of, you know, supply and demand and, and like very basic economic principles. It, it, it's not super complicated from that standpoint. I, I always tell people, if you don't know economics, but you know how to play the game really well, and you see a card that you're like, wow, that card seems broken in my EDH deck, or wow, that card just got spoiled, and that's going to make waves in, I don't know, Pioneer or Modern or Standard or whatever. If you see that and you know that as a player, it's probably a pretty safe bet to buy copies of that card in that moment with the presumption that they're going to rise in, in value because of the the basic you know the fact that you know that that card's going to be good because you're a player evaluator type of thing and you can see that those cards are going to be good now the flip side of that is being a financer but if you're not a player but you're a financer it starts to get a little bit more difficult especially if you're not really a a finance i'm sorry an mtg player at all um i think you guys are both experienced this maybe more in the pokemon side but pokemon doesn't it's not a utility based uh collectible it's just a purely a collectible it's not based on any sort of principle of playing it so it's a little bit less you know as you dabble in pokemon it, it's a little bit more pure finance as opposed to uh having to worry about card evaluation but from a finance standpoint if you're just speculator card evaluation is everything and uh it's been very difficult i guess to balance the content to ensure that 
that people can, I guess, understand and respect my abilities as a card evaluator, but also that I'm perceived as a finance person, if that makes any sense. Uh, I, I find that to be kind of a hard balance. And, um, you know, some people will say, wow, I really trust you from a finance advisor. That, that I'm not a financial advisor. I shouldn't say it like that. From an advice standpoint, like you're, you're saying, oh, you know, buy reserve list. And I said that back in February and it turned out I was spot on, right? Like that's cool. And that's a feather in the cap or whatever, but whatever that's, it is what it is. But if I, if I go and I say, these are the top five cards to buy because of Zendikar rising uh, spoilers, right? And all of those cards, or let's say four of those five cards end up doubling in price because of Zendikar rising. That's a lot, a lot more exciting. I think for people to, really appreciate because they see the tangible gains and it starts to add up as like, you know, if I do that for five or six sets in a row, it's like, wow, he actually kind of knows what he's talking about. So anyway, that's, I know that's like a long winded answer, but um, hopefully I answered some of the yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's definitely the, the experience from a player from being a player, I think is essential uh, uh, at least in some degree and form of capacity uh, to, to really finance, I think, in any of, uh, in any of Magic. So um, it's, it's just curious because I know um, you more than anybody, I, I think, that we, we've had on. Uh, first of all, you still play the game while you dabble in the finance aspect, which is something that I rarely see from folks who, who uh, handle in finance. Uh, Ezekiel, I know you've got your cube too, so you're also in this oddball group. But uh, I, like for me, most of the people that I know who are buying and selling cards have largely separated. I always joke church and state. So uh, it's always fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me to see like the, the people who, first of all, are, are keep both intact, but are, are kind of like, I, I guess, harmonious in that balance. Because I know for me, like I'm looking, I know I used to look at a card and be like, I know I could sell this for a profit, but even though I'm not playing it, I might. And I got to keep it because I might. Um, so, like the fact that people can can do both and kind of get over that and churn and burn, uh, it, it is kind of impressive to me. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it, that is uh, the separation of to borrow your statement, church and state, or or just inventory versus collection. In this case, I it's I, I've said this on podcasts in the past, Akil, when we had John on conviction, we talked about this too, and it's actually one of the like most important things I tell people that if you're going to do both the MTG finance piece and still play the game, which is what a lot of, I think a lot of the content consumers out there of MTG finance are actually players because the kind of the overarching theme of MTG finance that you hear a lot of finance content creators pitch myself included. I say this is we're trying to help you play the game cheaper, right? Like we're not necessarily trying to turn you into a vendor that's going to go out and do a hundred thousand in sales annually or something like that. We're just trying to help you know when it's the best time to get your cards for your EDH deck or your cube, or if you want to build a modern deck, right? Like staying ahead of the curve on that stuff to identify meta changes or, you know, synergies or anything of, of that nature. Uh, and what happens is when if you just look at it in that nature and you say, okay, yeah, we're trying to make the game cheaper. What I found early on when I started doing this and, and built my side business up while continuing to play is that I'd be like, all right, well, I bought these specs because of, I don't know, I'll make it up. Tasa Carla uh, was spoiled <laughs> and Re Ravnica Allegiance. Yeah. And I bought all these specs. And it's like, man, I could sell these for a 50% profit after fees, which is like what the whole intention Phenomenal. of me buying these. In. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, that's why I bought these. 
but I could just build the taste of deck and go play it. And that would be fun as heck, right? Cause this deck looks awesome. Yeah. It's very hard to separate that mentality. Uh, how I did it, if you're interested in that is, yeah. is, um, basically I, I set aside my business entirely. So, uh, you know, Zakiel, I think we talked about this a little bit when we, when we recorded actually, and mm -hmm. it, it was a monumental thing for me when I set aside my business and put my magic collection, meaning like the decks that I wanted or had or whatever into their own section of my like house, almost like, like compartmentalize them entirely. And they're not literally in a different room that all my magic stuff's in one room, but, but my inventory is very explicitly one thing. And my collection is very explicitly another, and there is yeah. no overlap. And once you get to that place and you can confidently do that, it makes it a lot easier. You have to basically decide mentally like, okay, these purchases are specs. They are inventory, right? They're going into inventory. They are going to be resold. Um, if you want another copy for yourself, sure buy an extra copy buy nine instead of eight or whatever and take that ninth copy and put it into your collection but don't write that ninth copy into your business in any way pay for that out of your own pocket and separate that money and separate all that you know and and you could almost think of it like you bought that copy from your business and you're transacting the five dollars or whatever it was back to your business so yeah absolutely and that i mean that resonates with me because i think even we talked about this on on uh, the cast when I came on for Conviction Gaming, but even as a player, right, there there comes a point where you've been playing for some amount of time and the commons and uncommons are no longer that special to you. And a lot of the hype and a lot of the spoiler season um, for players is like basically Christmas. Like what new spoiler cards are coming out? What new cards are going to make an impact not only on my deck, like you're saying, but also on the market? And I think separating like if I'm looking at just cracking packs or looking at new cards strictly from a finance perspective, it's like, I'm just going to order a case or I'm just going to crack boxes and like, Oh, here's the new, you know, mythic rare. That's $50. I only opened one and I had four boxes instead of like it, like that your perspective changes where everything is based in ROI as opposed to everything mm -hmm. being based from yes. like the emotional player perspective. So it's like, yeah. Oh my gosh, I opened a Tarmogoyf. Like I have videos on my channel from like, five years ago i did an unboxing of the first modern masters and the last pack on the booster box was a tarmogoyf i just lost it i was like so happy <laughs> yeah but now it's, it's like so, oh it's just a goyf who cares but they're completely that's different. such a good point yeah it's such a good point i i can literally tell you guys just two weeks ago uh, i got some vip packs I, I actually bought them a while ago back when you know like they first shipped for pre-orders and i decided i was like all right i had two cases of it i want to open one of these just because you know just for fun whatever i haven't opened any sealed in a long time and i wish i would have videoed it because it was the most incredible four vip packs that you could possibly imagine i pulled a borderless uh borderless force of will borderless mana crypt borderless karn three out of the four packs um and i also got a force of will pack foil as well in one of the packs it's just like holy cow this is but to your point like it was all I was losing it. I was super pumped, but I'm like, man, the ROI is amazing on this. And like, if I was a player and still in the player mindset, I would have been losing it for so many different reasons. Yeah. Just be like, I've never owned Will. What deck is this going to go to? But in reality, it's like, how how much can I get for this? Right? That's like the first thing you. Oh no! So like the first thing that comes into my mind is like, oh, this is super awesome. Oh, it's going to take six months for something this nice and this expensive to sell. I'm going to be sitting on it. <laughs> 
And so like <laughs> yeah. immediately it's like this is so amazing and then it's like oh wait this is going to be a chore for like the next three or six months isn't it and it's like wait this is totally con- like the opposite of what i should be doing right now i totally get that yeah we were talking about the difference between pokemon and magic opening seal <laughs> i mean it's super relevant here if you all of our memories that we were sharing with each other before cast is like yeah. Pokemon, I remember all my, I remember opening my Charizard, but with Magic, I, yeah, I shared that I remember my first pack opening, but that's about it. <laughs> I remember my first pack opening and I remember my most recent one and everything in between, couldn't tell you. So, yeah, I like, I, I already know right now because um, I mentioned this uh, in prior casts, we're saying that a lot, but like uh, my fiance, she had like a Pokemon binder and that was one of the first things that, because uh, I was single for three months in college before I met her. Um, and she had, she knew I was into magic. So like, we still have it. And now that I'm getting into Pokemon, like I get, uh, like I had a ancient origins box come in a couple weeks back and we sat down and like the first pack that she opened was like the, the Lugia V max, like the rarest version. And that's like one of her oh, favorites. Wow. Yeah. So like now, now, now every time I think I'm going to be like buying Pokemon sealed, I have to buy four boxes, two for the shelf to, to be forgotten about. And then one box for each of us to open like at like across from each other so we can like make an evening out of it uh, which is really nerdy but that, it's that's cool though that's actually really cool that you guys share that together that's a lot of fun so yeah. i wish my, my wife was in cards that, home so. my girlfriend's like more cards <laughs> <laughs> yeah amen i that's that's more of my story too sakil <laughs> it's like you, you're supposed to be getting rid of them it's like yeah <laughs> quick i had quick story i had uh i bought a collection like a year and a half ago and i ended up picking up um i bu- basically bought all of the bulk from a store that was that ended up going out of business it was like eighty thousand cards and i churned through the majority of it in like a week but after that i was like oh i'll get to this i'll get to this and it ended up just sitting in our like hallway for like six months at some yeah. point i was like okay what what is this <laughs> like okay i don't blame you <laughs> This is ridiculous. There's no reason to have fifty thousand magic cards in the living room. Oh my gosh! But um, anyway, as far as you're willing, what is your current position in MTG Finance? And of the platforms that you sell on, do you have any favored platforms? Yeah, great questions. Um, so to break that up, so the my current position is is ambiguous right now, um, although a little bit more defined. I, as you both know, and I think many people who know me who might listen to this, are, I've been going through sort of this like burnout phase. I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know if I just bit off more than I could chew. It's probably some combination of all of that and more. Uh, and you know, I kind of had to step away and just get my, my mental health and, and life sort of back in, in order and, you know, just more on track and stuff but um i should i should add it's not just all that it's all the all the um social injustice and stuff and i, I won't monopolize the cast but that has certainly been a huge factor for me and and distracting me in terms of i, I don't want to call it distracting that's not even doesn't do it justice but uh has been on my mind a lot more it's been a lot harder to do anything with magic whether it's content or vending because of what's going on with that so anyway i digress a little bit but the um my current position mtg finance is that i still love it i still enjoy these type of things i love creating content i love being a part of content i certainly love sharing thoughts and insights and just having those 
really deep and and thought provoking conversations. Akil, when we enter, you know, when we did our interview at Conviction with you, the, it was a long cast, and and you know, I I ended up just I started to edit it, and I was like, you know what. I don't really want to edit this because the entire two hours that we talked was like really good conversation. It was, it was long, but it was the type of thing where if people can power through and listen to it and break it up and, and enjoy it, like you're going to get a lot out of it. And that's, I guess that's where I, my current position, MTG finance is unchanged in that standpoint. I, or from that standpoint, I, I love doing that stuff, whether it's content creation or, um, you know, being a part of it. The other side of it where I, you know, I have my business, Chicago Style Gaming, that has become really, I use the term burnt out. And that piece has really been the, the part that I think I've started to really reevaluate. Um, I've, I've looked at everything and, and I know we'll get to the Conviction Gaming piece in a, in a little bit here, but um, I've looked at everything and started to reevaluate my life because the last six months have been kind of chaotic for me. I, 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 <laughs> just can't keep running yeah. on five to six hours of sleep and having mm-hmm. mental exhaustion like I've been. So I've had to kind of re-examine every piece and every phase of my life. And so one of those that was an easy choice was Chicago style gaming. I, I did, you know, a substantial amount of sales and I had a growth plan that started in 2018. So I, I really formalized my business in 2018. It was like, all right, this is the first year where I'm gonna, you know, make this a very professional thing. I, I went out and got a logo. I got my LLC filed. It was no longer like just this little side thing where I would resell fifteen to twenty thousand cards. Uh, tw- uh, sorry, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in sales and call mm-hmm. it a day. And and it became more of like, no, we're turning in. We're turning this into like an actual income, and it was successful. I mean, I, I've grown that tremendously over these last couple of years. Um, you know, and I, it's been a lot of fun, I would say. I've learned so much, both in the community, you know, from a community standpoint, but also just like life things, you know, about running a business. So that's been a huge takeaway and really an exciting thing. But the, to shore it up and, and what my stance is, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if it's temporary or permanent. I, I never want to say never, right? But, um, I'm definitely for at least an indefinite amount of time right now going to be closing that shop down. It's just in like runoff. So I still obviously have inventory. I'm going to keep selling it, but I'm not really actively out looking for collections, looking for um, specs, anything of that nature right now. So that piece is, is um, really dialed back quite a bit and, you know, trying to get some time back in my life for mostly, most notably for my family. I have an 18 month old, he's not even 18 months, he's 16 months, but he acts like he's, 16 years old already. Um, and I just want to be able to spend time with him. You know, that's what, that's what a big piece of this behind the scenes yeah. comes down to. So, yeah, so that's kind of it, I guess, on the, on the vendor side. Uh, the second piece of the question, oh yeah, platforms. Um, so I've always, you know, I've always been a huge fan of, of TCG player. I've never had issues with them until I had this really big debacle with the Mox diamond sale. And frankly, you know, I, I I was in a lot of ways wrong. I'm sure there was, I'm not going to speak for them, but I felt they were in the wrong in some of it as well. And I'm over it now. I was really upset with TCG player when that all went down and and I'm not going to sit here and tell the whole story, but the, the short of it is I, I still think they're a good platform. I think that they have some shortcomings when it comes to taking care of their sellers. And I think that that was heavily on display with my situation and, and, you know, 
it kind of, as I kind of came out with that, I started to hear other stories from other people and, and it turns out I'm not alone. Like it, it's a bigger problem, it seems like, but, um, I still think they're a good platform. I would say that I know we were going to talk a little bit about just briefly the card trader partnership. I'm excited about their platform quite a bit. They're, they're, uh, as you know, both of you probably know, and some of the listeners may know, Conviction Gaming. We we've got a partnership with Card Trader where they are moving into the U.S. market. So they were started in Italy, and they wanted to establish kind of a global connection. So they're they've got a hub now in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they're trying to gain some traction with more vendors in the U.S. side of the the globe, and so. They approached us actually through one of our members, Phil Allen. He he signed up with them initially. I don't know how he found them, but that's how I got the connection with them. And um, one thing led to another, and we had a nice partnership started with them. And their platform is great. Their website's great. I think the most important thing about them is their card traders in its kind of infancy, and so they're they're very open to feedback. They're very, I guess open to taking care of the buyer and the seller, which is really important to me uh, after what I just went through with TCG Player. Um, not to say TCG Player doesn't do that. I just think they have some shortcomings right now. Um, but I guess lastly, the thing about Card Trader that I'm pretty excited about is their technology is really strong. They, they actually yes. have a really good understanding of technology. And yeah, I, Chris, I know you can with both of you guys, I mean, this cast is in part about technology and how that overlaps with a variety of different elements, whether it's MTG or just real world application. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, I mean, long story short is I love their technology and what they can do with that. I think that's going to be their differentiator, their you know competitive advantage moving forward. And uh, I, I really think that they're going to disrupt the the you know, TCG marketplace over time as they gain more of a, a foothold. So. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I, you're, you're softening your your, your punches on TCG, which uh, is, is good for you. Uh, for me, uh, when I look at it, uh, TCG charges double to triple the fee amount than any other vendor in the marketplace. And uh, I think they're able to do that because of, um, uh, the, the brand awareness, almost everybody in magic, yep pretty much knows what tcg player is and having done a a lot of um in-depth analysis on tcg's website um they're they're they don't protect their data to that to a, an extent that i think would be the wisest um but you can you can really see on tcg i mean magic is the bread and butter of what sells on that site and i mean they charge pretty much 13 15 almost 20 percent fees on sales anything under like three dollars if you're a direct seller it's like 50%. But if you go to Magic Card Market, it's a 5% fee. Card Trader, it's a 5% fee. And now when I look at like Card Trader's uh, technical, and I mean, when I say, when we talk about technology and like software, I mean, just like uh, developers, uh, software yes. engineers, they have like, I, they probably have like a half dozen codas over there, which is, and the fact <laughs> that like, then the fact that literally like a half dozen guys can, in my opinion, create a cleaner, more interactive, uh, uh, platform for selling magic cards than TCG does now with, you know, 30% of the fees um, makes me kind of wonder. I, I mean, if anybody does research into TCG player, I really hope they're enjoying that pirate ship. Just Google TCG pirate ship and you're going to, you, you'll, you'll start having ideas about like, where's the money going? Because, uh, and, and to be honest, to be fair to TCG, I think 
they have a really solid logistical network. They have a really strong consumer base. Their brand name is very strong. I think that the most established and the, the strongest in the marketplace because they have that premium on the fees. Um, but for me, when I see something like Card Trader, when I see that these people are able to create what they can create with what they have, um, I think it really keeps TCG honest. And I, I really appreciate that. I mean, that's market competitiveness. And for me, when I see that, that just makes me really, really happy. Because as you said, there, there are going to be like these shortcomings and, and these elements where, uh, you know, Card Trader will do things better than TCG, even though obviously they're two very different enterprises at this current state in time, the fact that that interaction is still occurring to me, like keeps everyone honest. And I, I, I really appreciate that about the market in Magic. It's still so open. And the fact that a half dozen guys can literally like kind of challenge like the, the king of the hill on this element is is a lot of fun for me. And I, th I think it really is a, makes it a healthy marketplace, despite what uh, Despite what you what might be said, I think at least from the tech end, it's it's very nice to see. Yeah, no, I agree. I, hold on, hold everything on. you said I is. To, I had to Google on. this pirate ship. You're talking about the actual pirate ship in their office? Yes, yeah. they have an actual yep. pirate ship in their I office. Mean, you what does that have to do with these? <laughs> okay, sorry. I was so lost. I had no idea what yeah. you were talking about. Okay, this is like. Yeah. The that like tongue-in-cheek joke every time that like tcg is like well we couldn't afford to do this or we it's we like a meme i mean it's yeah, it's like well what's with the pirate ship man <laughs> like yeah yeah f folks if you're listening to this and you're like driving or something when you get to a spot where you can actually go on google it's please do that pirate even if you're driving it is <laughs> it is <laughs> tcg player <laughs> tcg um, player pirate ship yeah but i chris i was just gonna say that i I think the the one thing that I didn't hear you mention that I just want to go back in time on a little bit with TCG Player is they were first movers. And because they were first mover in the industry, I think that alone has given them, not just the industry in the US, by the way, they were like first mover, first mover. And they have revolutionized the idea of a, a TCG Player, uh, sorry, a, a trading card game marketplace. Um, but but because of their first mover spot, it's it's kind of like they've I feel like gotten comfortable, and they also probably have a spider web with their technology, and so they just haven't taken the time. You know, it'd be like trying to turn a cruise ship or whatever. But yeah. th th that first mover aspect, and then you can combine that with the fact that they're kind of like where the market goes for pricing, and they they mm -hmm. just have all the brand power because of that. So. Yeah, my, 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 my final comments here, and I'll let you have like the, the final comment afterwards too, is what, what I gathered from TCG uh, like as a platform is, again, they, they capitalized off of Magic and they know how to sell Magic cards, um, but you can only sell Magic cards to like how many different programs can you have to sell Magic cards? I think eventually you have to branch into other TCGs, other collectible markets. StockX sells sneakers. There's no reason why TCG couldn't do other collectibles. And now right. recently we've seen that this impressive push into Pokemon, which might actually be one of the influencing factors about why I'm personally liking to move into to Pokemon. But as of right now, it's such a small percentage of the market. I just feel like TCG oftentimes, I, I would describe it as might get into their own head, trying to discover more ideas of how to sell magic cards instead of just picking up what they have and moving it to another collectible market which i think would be uh easier in concept probably much harder in in just overall development but um 
Yeah, that, at least that's my take on TCG. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I 100%. I, I, I honestly don't really have anything to add. I 100% agree with you. Um, eBay does that very well, but eBay is just a general marketplace. There's not a, a focal point for just collectibles. And what card trader is trying to do is exactly what you just described. It's you know it's on their call it a five year roadmap. For example, I don't I don't know what the actual time frame is, but it is a roadmap item for them to expand into all different sets of collectibles. First, I know they want to round out the understanding of all of like the collectible trading cards, and then once they do that, they've talked about sports cards and then you know potentially yeah. coins and sneakers and i mean the list goes on they, they want to become yeah. kind of a collectible marketplace for the world not just for the u.s or for europe etc um, so I, I if you haven't i'm just going to give a little quick plug here if you haven't if you haven't listened to this cast that i did with card trader we, we recorded on conviction gaming if you guys don't mind i'm gonna just yeah, go say it. it you know Go, go go out and listen to that. You can find it on the Conviction Gaming website. Uh, it's probably just buried down. It's like the 30th episode, roughly. But if you Google Conviction Gaming Card Trader, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Uh, it's it's a it was a good episode. If you just want to learn more about their site, and then um, you know we actually touch on some of this stuff that we're covering right now. So that'll be a hundred dollars for that ad. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, I yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Let I go, guys. Did you see the time? Um, <laughs> it's fine. I think the interesting thing about collectibles is that TCG Player, Card Market, even StockX, they their marketplace works for one item in large volumes, but their marketplace yeah. does not work for one of ones, uh, yep. which is why graded and higher end cards always go to eBay, because yep. like say you want to buy it, just like say you want to buy. Uh, a graded Savannah or something on TCG player. It's like almost impossible to find it. You would have to filter to like the seventh page. Sometimes there's maybe like one every listing um, on the higher mm-hmm. end stuff, but it's almost impossible. And if you, I've been really disappointed because, and this is the, I don't have any major criticism of, TG, of TCG player other than the fact that fees are high, but you can't even filter. Like the filters aren't even consistent across all the card <laughs> games. So on Yu-Gi-Oh, you can't even filter by first ed which is like insane because it's available yep. in magic. Why is it not available in, in, yeah. in Yu-Gi-Oh? Yep. Anyway, One of my it, frustrating it, it, things, uh, yeah, it's the same thing with Pokemon. Like if you go, they have base set. Uh, and what was funny to me is that you have like all of these listings for Pokemon right now, even though TCG is moving into Pokemon, uh, they don't have first edition and they don't have Shadowless. So I'll see some, and then like, there's clearly no um, QA, I guess, on this because like I went and I was looking at like somebody was listing their base set to Venusaur Hollows in base, calling it a first edition with a picture, and it's like this is wrong on like twenty seven different levels. <laughs> but here we are. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's so many UX UX issues with their website, both from a buying and selling standpoint. But, but hey, I digress. Hey, yeah. yeah, they're 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 good. We're beating <laughs> up on them because they are the kings. I mean, I mean it's, I mean, it's I easy to find thousands of dollars of business that's, with them, right? That's yeah. true. Yep. yep. Why that's is there true. no analytics tool in the back end? This is the only. Oh, I made in the I world. made the analytics tool on the back end. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, why can't I see sales, you know, graphs or anything? So it's it's. Yeah. I mean, it's the. Right, it's the blessing and the curse. They the they time. know that their data is valuable, and they're scared to 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 share it because they know that they they really do. They they, they could charge an entirely new monthly subscription based off we're going to show you our sales data, and because they 
they comprise over half of the MTG uh, singles marketplace. So, and, and even if it's a little less than that, there's such a substantial margin. There is such extreme value to that data. You can start really competing with other vendors on there at a substantial level. Um, they just need to, I, 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 I'm just going to say they, they need a couple data science or data analysts over there. I'm just going to float that out there, TCG, because, I mean, they yeah, have all yeah, this information. Listening. They know it's valuable, but they're just not utilizing it in any form or capacity. And uh, to be honest, it's funny to me because they're floating it out to kind of Casey LaBelle and her articles. And those articles are great because we don't even know what the data is. We just know that she has it. And whether I, I, I like, I mean, she, I think she does a pretty decent job of explaining what she's working with and, and gathering interpretations from it. But the fact that it, I know from like the vendors that I talk to and the established sellers, they love it. And I know they would pay a premium because they're asking that they're offering to pay me for the version that I've created off their back end. So if they did something officially, hell, I would pay for it uh, just because I wouldn't have to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> we digress. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to Conviction Gaming. Um, what inspired the idea for you? So Chicago was Chicago style gaming first? It was. Yeah, how, how did Chicago that addiction gaming come about? Yeah, Chicago style was like 2017. That was the name that I came up with. I mentioned that I started, I like formalized my business in 2018. So December 2017, I started Chicago style gaming, and like that was a standalone thing for my vending business. Conviction gaming and how that came about. It th- there's a pretty long story. The short version is I used to write articles for Quiet Speculation, and I worked kind of for them as like a pseudo community manager, pseudo, a lot of things. And I was never really wanting to commit to being like any of the things they wanted to me to wanted me to be. There was a couple of reasons for that. I'll just leave it as, as simple as I value my time pretty, pretty expensively. And um, in their case, it, it just wasn't going to be even close to what I value my time at. So yeah. I, I stepped away. I, I was, very transparently, I was making $20 an article and I wasn't even getting paid at one point for getting podcasts out. I did probably 12 to 15 podcasts with uh, Chaz, who was the community manager at the time. And it wasn't until about the 15th podcast that I was like, wait a second, why am I not getting paid for these? And I ended up working out where I got like 20 bucks for a handful of those. And it, there was just a, a, a laundry list. That I'm not going to sit here and beat them up over. I don't have any ill will towards quiet spec, but uh, the the short of it is I felt like I was way more valuable to them than they were to me. And I decided, I was like, you know what? It's kind of, if I'm not here and I don't provide the insights and the content for them, they don't really have anything. And so I stepped away. I felt like I could be more valuable in my own world and having my own brand. And uh, I knew that people respected my content and you know appreciated my content enjoyed it whatever the right term is there and so i last october i stepped away i i basically started to lay the groundwork for what my brand could look like and i gave quiet spec ample notice i I told them i was going to do that in october and gave them you know figure three months i said january 1st is going to be my quote-unquote last day so i'll give you three months to you know figure out if you want to transition the podcast transition some of the other work that i do for your community and um and started laying the groundwork for conviction that i mean that's where it came from that's essentially how it kind of started and 
uh, everything kind of blossomed from there. So going in that kind of development in that creation period, what were some of the challenges that you faced? And just, I mean, I've never launched a discord or kind of a community, um, but how did you, right? So you started, I'm sure you have somewhat of a network, but as you're branching out and, and trying to attract new members and then also just trying to, so I feel like there's two parts here, right? You're trying to produce as high quality content as you can for your brand. But on top of that, you're also trying to attract new people to uh, you know, advertise your brand and show its value. Um, were there any challenges with that? And how did you approach doing that? Yeah, it's a, again, kind of a long answer. This, this one, I'll probably spend a little more time detailing because there's a lot of good, I could share a lot of like good insights and I guess advice for folks who might be interested in doing something similar. So when we started the brand, I say we, I should, I should caveat this. So I, I really started conviction and, and kind of was like the face of it for all intents and purposes, because I, as you said, I had like a small network. People actually kind of knew who I was, but it wasn't just me. Uh, one of my friends, good, good friends that I met in actually at GP Milwaukee in 2018, Jesus Garcia became kind of like my partner in, in doing the, the podcast and hosting the, the, the uh, community in general, you know, he's he's one of our two two admins, me being the other, and so Jesus and I got this off the ground. When I, I'll give a pre story because it's relevant to some of what I'm going to share. So when when Jesus and I met in 2018, Jesus was a new player to Magic. He had he started playing in Kaladesh, so I think he'd only been playing the game for at that point maybe maybe two years, and and I think that's probably even probably too much probably less than that so he was new to the whole idea of the game and he had never even really understood or heard of the idea of mtg finance right and so i met him in a pod there and it was kind of a fun story we played a game of edh and i uh, just kind of hit it off and started talking and i told him about quiet spec and how i wrote articles for them and one thing led to the next i sent him an article he's like wow this is really great and, and he started following those articles you know, I uh, started reading them for me. Uh, I say for me because I would like get an extra click, right? Um, but he would read the <laughs> articles and he had interest in those. And he and I stayed in touch. And so in October of 2019, last year, when this all kind of started to come to come to fruition, I knew I was going to start Conviction regardless of Jesus. It, it was going to happen either way. Uh, but when I talked to him about it, I my whole vision for Conviction Gaming was that we would help bridge the gap for newer players. It, it didn't even have to be new players, just players who had never really been around MTG Finance. So rather than like the more experienced veterans who are on like the vending side, we would appeal to people who may not ever even know about MTG Finance or not really know much about supply-demand concepts, things of that nature, and kind of help more on like an educational side. So I talk about like playing the game cheaper. Our whole tagline at Conviction was... Uh, think like a brewer, buy like a financer. And it's a great tagline. It defined who we became. Jesus came up with that. It's, I, it was like, it was awesome, awesome thing that he thought of. And so as we started the community, we started to run into, we didn't have that tagline early on. So we didn't really have this like clear, I guess, vision. Like I knew we wanted to help people learn more about MTG finance, but the awkward thing was that all the people that actually appreciated my content were already financers. They were, they, most of them were players back to your point earlier, Chris, like they, they were financers, they bought cards to make money. They weren't trying to play the game. And so it was kind of awkward because it was like, wait a second, the community I want to start wants to do this one thing where we want to attract this like new 
kind of clientele, I guess I'll call it, or like, you know, a uh, consumer of content, which rookie. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, rookie. Yes, exactly. And, and so like, that was like the, that was like what I wanted to do, but all the people that joined conviction were people that were like super veteran, you know, <laughs> very, very well versed in MTG finance and people who really looked to me more for my card evaluation than, than they did for me to like teach them anything. Right. It was more for like advice yeah. and stuff. So, so there was kind of a conflict early on. So I would tell you part one of my advice is if you ever want to start a content stream or discord or anything of that nature make sure that you're you're able to bring in and and deliver the content to your audience so you know your audience and that you're able to deliver that one of the things i did wrong was i stretched myself too thin by bringing in people who wanted my card evaluation but marketing our brand as if we were going to teach you how to do finance because now i had two audiences to address and i just I, as a one-man show, I just physically could not keep up with that to to write content for both parties. So that's kind of where things started to break down with us. But um, that's the big one. The the other piece to this answer is you said challenges faced on uh, on starting it. The other big challenge was not really having like a a meaningful presence in the MTG community. I mean, I. I I have like a, a decent reputation in MTG finance with, you know, our s smaller circle of MTG finance, but with what we wanted to do to market to uh, Chris, I'm going to borrow that call like MTG finance rookies and to like bring them in and, and like that become the clientele. It was a very challenging, uh, like brand proposition, I guess. Like I, I see an opportunity in the community for this to exist because I do think in Magic's community, it's a it's a big gap. I think it's currently it's kind of all or nothing. You can either belong to an amazing community like Van, where like everybody knows finance, not everybody, but the majority of people know finance really well, and you've got a lot of power sellers and really, really, really strong finance content. And then you have all these other communities out there who are like let's go play EDH. And they, they're like brewing content, right? And it's like, yeah, here, here's the latest modern deck that I 5-0'd with, right? And so there's like this big gap in between those two things where it's like, okay, wait, I want to take brewers and the people who are interested in building these 5-0 decks or these cool EDH decks and pair them with these people who love to vend and understand the, the economic side of magic and bring that together and like create this like harmonious community so that was like my whole goal and i i think in retrospect it's doable I, I really believe that there is a way to deliver on that but the challenge i face is i did it i was trying to do it with jesus and i by ourselves and two people to create a big community to address all of that is just not enough people so we the the second big challenge to kind of summarize that is we just didn't build we didn't build a team that uh, that was capable you know broadly of doing what we needed to do to deliver on the the idea i could not do that alone and i think i thought i could um and jesus you know obviously with me i thought like the two of us could do it and it's still it just wasn't enough the two of us so have a good team is is extremely important the bigger the the bigger the push of what you want to do the the more important it is to have a team around you mm -hmm. that's a good point yeah. and all right. Well, <clears throat> sorry, Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's it's interesting because I think a lot of that what what the way that I perceive that is creating that foundational infrastructure, if you will, of having discussion. Right, like 
you have channels that are always live. You have content that's always producing. You have, uh, you know, people, if a new person is joining the community, you have someone to greet them and to, you know, kind of guide them through the process, which is you know, obviously what you're just saying. And I can only imagine, right, two people as that continues to grow. Oh, God, uh, yeah. You're, and especially on top of your already, you know, Chicago-style gaming is and your day job, right? <laughs> this is like a million things at once. I can't be- And a 16-month-year-old. And a 16-month-old. Yeah, it's insane. Oh, yeah, yeah, that get it. That is a that is a synopsis yeah. of why I've burnt myself out. So yeah. it's uh, it's it's yeah, like listening to you talk about it too, because I mean this is this is a problem that we have at Band too. I mean, I, we have like four or five core guys right now, and and like I can tell you, like that being stretched thin, because there's it, it it really echoes back to what you said. Like you see that there's there's so much that can be done for the marketplace, but there's literally only so much that you can actually provide. And it's not even like a skill cap. It's a time like restraint. Yes. Like there's so much that you could do if you could just get around to it. And like, um, and then what, like something that I'm personally struggling with right now is that like, okay, you create something great. Now you've got to maintain it. But not only do you yes. have to maintain it, but you want to create, you want to continue to create something new. But the cost of maintaining now occupies the majority of your time. So now, if you want to like watch tutorials, if you want to learn something new, you have to take your eyes off maintaining it and hope like hell with your fingers crossed it doesn't break while you're looking away. Do this, and now when you come back, if you want to implement it, and then like uh, yeah, like that, it it's a very hard line to to juggle. And like you, thinking you are about just. <laughs> you're preaching to the choir on that i mean that's that was like so spot on i can't even i can't even tell you i was doing it today <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll ask you a tough yeah. question if you had to choose between building a community or oh. building a business which one are you picking building a community or building a business i'm building a business most likely i, I mean is this let me uh, let me ask a clarifying question is this specific sure. to mtg um Let's do both. How does that? We'll say if you were to have to focus prime hundred percent on Chicago style or hundred percent on on conviction, which would you pick? And then does that change based on your industry or you know it does? It yeah. does, that, does that answer scale kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. If it's just MTG, I would pick conviction over Chicago style because I feel so much more fulfillment of helping others than than conviction, which is just more of a kind of grindy maybe maybe more profitable right like like i'm saying like if they both achieve their maximum potential conviction is probably not going to be nearly as profitable as chicago style is but the fun factor is so much higher on conviction conviction is not actually what burnt me out it was chicago style gaming that burnt me out uh conviction was i think more of like a straw that that broke the camel's back so to speak and mm -hmm. if i could do it all over and and like now with the hindsight 2020 i probably would have still started conviction and given up chicago style like the same day right and and that way everything would have been much more focused on just that one piece of the the my mtg passion i guess uh something nobody really knows though is i started conviction gaming while i was on recovery from heart surgery so i wasn't working i was on short-term disability for about two two months, eight weeks ballpark. And I'll just share this, you know, very like openly and transparently. I started conviction during that time where I had every day, I literally had nothing to do. I was, I could barely move because I had just had open heart surgery and 
in recovery, I was looking for something to take my mind off of recovery. And that was a huge reason why if you look back, even just looking at like our Patreon and our website and like basically all of the content and everything about conviction, the first five months of conviction from October when we started it till about March, that's more than five months, isn't it? No, that's five. That's right. <laughs> I had to count that. Um, that time frame, I, we probably produce more in that five months than we have in the remaining, I guess, six months at this point um, by, by a long shot. And the reason for that is because half of that time, I wasn't working my day job, right? So I was literally just able to focus on conviction as if it was a primary job. And it was so much fun. It was so enjoyable. Um, so that's why that answer for me is really easy as a kill. I, I, I know that I, I could enjoy conviction as like an, a real job if it could actually pay like a real job, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Um, and how does that scale if you change industries? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I was, if I was changing this to more of a personal business, I know we were going to talk about, you know, industries and careers at, at one point, and I'm in the insurance technology, financial technology space. Um, I have a lot of entrepreneurial passion and at a large scale, I would absolutely start a business. Uh, I, I still someday hope to, I mean, it's, it's certainly, I would say a life achievement goal for me. You know, it's one of the, one of the few that I think are kind of Mount Everest type achievements is to start a business and, and maintain a business that becomes successful. Um, so so yeah, I mean, that's a no brainer for me. And that would, I, I don't know what the difference between a business and conviction, like a community would be. I think at the end of the day, they're both business, uh, Chicago style and conviction are both businesses, but I would want to create something sustainable, um, profitable and sustainable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be a business on one side and then maybe like a cult, I guess, on the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and defer against that, that idea. Yeah, so we'll stick to the business. But Nice. Uh, Wolf, do you want to do the next one? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, so in, in terms of, we, we touched on about everything pretty briefly so far, at least. Uh, but in terms of like the, just like the, speculation and business methodology like what's your personal strategy because you you've mentioned uh, kind of your ability to to narrow in during spoiler season like uh of locating cards of monetary value versus like playability and and kind of n figuring out which cards you want to act on and which cards not to yeah it's so funny i'm gonna take a second here and i'm gonna mention um a conversation i had back in I, i'm gonna ballpark this and say it was like 2015 2016 something like that. I I was talking to a, one of the major finance personalities out there because I was starting to use the MTG finance tag on Twitter. And uh, you all know who I'm talking about because he's very protective of that tag. And, um, and, and we had a conversation in DMs one time, which was ultimately a really, I think, in, like it, it was a conversation that has set my mentality for the answer I'm about to give about methodology ever since. And the question, or one of the questions he asked me was like, what are you basically like, like you're using the MTG finance tag. I think I was like intimidating because I had pretty good analysis early on and, and, uh, but it was very player driven analysis. And 
the question was like, what are you? It was, you know, like, what's your spot in MTG? I, I don't even know how else to to phrase it, but that was literally the question. And I answered very like generically because I didn't know. I didn't know what my answer was supposed to be or should be. And I, I, I was like just getting into the idea of MTG finance, even though I had been doing it for 10 years, flipping collections over that time. So regard to methodology, I now actually can answer this question three, four, five years later since that conversation. And my methodology is twofold. I, Because my experience started with flipping collections, I still find that to be the absolute best method for making money in, in magic. If you can build that rapport, build that reputation in your community, whether it's locally, regionally, nationally, et cetera, that you become a trusted member of the community that people look to. I, I, a great example of this is Charlie and what Charlie's done in Europe as becoming like the, the he started out as like the misprints guy. He's much more than that now, but like that gave him a name and he's built himself into this awesome vendor in Europe. And so the, I never got to that, like, I guess, scale. I, I'm very small time, obviously, but that would be part of my methodology. It's a huge part. And in more recent years, time really got in the way of me being able to stay on top of that. So collections became harder to buy, you know, negotiate, deal with that, picking them up, sorting them, et cetera, et cetera. All the time that goes into that became less and less appealing to me because I started making more money in my real time job. I had a baby, I'm married, like real life got in the way, right? So I adjusted and started to really pick up on the speculator side. And there's two pieces to my methodology there. They both heavily rely on data and, and you know, data analytics, I guess. One of those is that that I let me let me rephrase that. Both of them are data driven. One is pure supply demand, like watching cards disappear off TCG player and realizing that oh, it's probably time to buy. I mean, it's not as simple as that. You also I I've watched buy lists go up and things like that. But that's one very obvious thing that I've been doing for years. The other the other piece is it's also data-driven, but it's not necessarily supply-demand. It's actually understanding metas. And and we talked about a lot of talked a lot about card evaluation. Um mm-hmm. I I love card evaluation and I love meta evaluation. I'm not a competitive player. I don't play standard pioneer modern etc i don't play any of those i've never played any of those but i understand magic very very well i've been around the game for over 20 years at this point and i obviously i know you guys know this i'm really heavily into the commander world i play commander all the time and i have a pretty good sense I, I think i like to say i have a great sense even i i'm pretty modest generally but i think i have a great sense of casual appeal of magic cards so like I could tell you what magic card is going to sell really well based on its appeal to the kitchen table. And so my methodology is heavily dependent on that. I trust my card evaluation. I track my card evaluation extraordinarily closely. And so when I talk about data, it's not so much like, let's go see if TCG player supply dropped by 10% overnight or something. It's more like, hey, this new card came out and it created this cool synergy with that card. And like, that's a really obvious example, but it could also be like, hey, that's like a 25 cent version of Crater Hoof Behemoth. I think I'm going to grab some of those. And you grab them at 25 cents. The next thing you know, you're flipping on TCG Direct for 
80 cents or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and that stuff starts to add up and you, you, that's where, that's where I make a lot of my money at this point. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a very, obviously you're, I'll say this all the time. Obviously tactics are going to be different to be a successful seller means you've discovered your own niche and you're, and you're working towards it. So it's always, it's always uh, fun for me to, to discuss and, and learn other, other uh, sellers methodologies and players, obviously. Um, I'm just kind of moving ahead a little bit here. Um, given uh, Watsi's more recent printing strategies, uh, how do you think it differs from the strategies of the past? And um, are you the biggest fan of it? Are you not? Because uh, I, I know uh, I hear a lot of back and forth. Some people uh, really, and I hear this predominantly from the finance side, that they really don't like that we're reprinting or we Watsi is reprinting all of this uh, reprint equity so quickly. It makes it a lot harder to keep up with uh, reprints and the value of cards. Uh, but then from a player perspective, I mean, they kind of like it because you're getting all of these cards back. It's keeping the, the cost of cards low. So wh where do you kind of fall in on that? Yeah, I um, so uh, just the two quick thoughts on this. So back in February, I started harping on reserve lists and made a kind of like a hot take, not, mm -hmm. not really a hot take, but like a pretty powerful post in Conviction Gaming where I said, hey, everybody, it was February 22nd. I, I don't know why I know that date, but it, it was... <laughs> It's my best, one of my best friend's birthdays, and um, I, I remember making a post and, and writing a quick article, basically saying like, "Hey, we're going to get a million reprints, and we know this. Watsi's being very transparent about it. They're listening to the players asking for it. So, guess what's going to move because of that? Let's buy reserve list." And I, I went ahead and I flipped a ton of my inventory. I took losses actually on, on a lot of my inventory that um, you know due to fees and paying retail, etc. And flipped it out, rotated it into reserve list, and I ended up with like a. I, I originally aimed for 60 40 split, 60% reserve list, 60% reserve list, 40% not. I ended up probably closer on a dollar, dollar amount scale to like 70 30. And we all know what's happened the last six months since. Uh, so it's been very lucrative. It's been a really you know, I was in before people were even buying or thinking about buying cards like Lure of Prey. I was buying those for a buck fifty at Star City Games, maybe even less than that. And um, so that's been one of the strategies that's changed for me. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I do think the reserve list will die down. It's already starting to. I mean, the prices are cooling off a little bit, but I think generally reserve list is just going to be a great spot if you if you have a long term horizon on Magic. It's a great place to be. It always has been, but probably now more than ever, given the commitment to reprints, I think that's going to be, you know, a safe haven. In terms of impact to my strategy with the Watsi reprints, I am adjusting a little bit. I, I'd say that I'm a lot more hesitant to buy specs in general. It used to be really easy during spoiler season to just be like, okay, these are the top five cards, buy these, and you're going to probably make 20, 30, 40% margin. Now it's between COVID and impacts from that and players not being able to get together and play, uh, supply issues. There's there's so many variables right now. I've been very hesitant to really invest money into anything other than reserve list. And so my strategy with like the reprints, reprints and and um, you know what what they've been doing, printing strategy in general these last in 2020 especially, but I would say the last couple years has been really heavily focused on staples. So I've been taking lower margins, a lot lower margins. I, I aim 
no higher than maybe 20% margins. But to do that, I've been able to, it's more volume based. So I'll buy cards like Smothering Tithe and buy a bunch of those. And actually that that's a great example of one because it sells like Soul Ring. It's, it, it's hard to keep it in stock. Um, so I, I've kind of adjusted to become more of a volume seller as opposed to a margin seller. And I think that's going to be something, you know, for small time, if you're a small time vendor, you're probably going to have to consider that if you don't use things like the band tools to get the the pure arbitrage that's out there from like the EU to the US. I, I don't, by the way, uh, touch on arbitrage hardly at all. And it's just a personal decision I've made. Um, but that's where the opportunity, like, if you're, if you're listening to this, that's where the opportunity is. There, there's a ton of that out there all the time. And uh, unfortunately, it's getting more and more competitive because, man, you guys are knocking it out of the world, Chris, with uh, identifying all that stuff now. So yeah, I say I, unfortunate, I, fortunate and unfortunate. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say that the the reward for the effort, because honestly, I'm, I'm much more like you. I mean, I do uh, a little arbitrage, but most of what I do is I kick it over to Charlie or Bacon. Um, or even Coda because he, he's trapped in the EU right now. But um, the, the effort to reward, it, it, it is extremely easy. And I'm not going to rephrase that because it is extremely easy, uh, e- even in its present state comparatively to the effort that you have to put in to, if you are going to seclude yourself in the North American bubble for MTG Finance, it's much, 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 much harder to compete with only NA sellers buying at NA prices. And it's so yes. easy and so tempting to kind of reach into the cookie jar globally and just buy and move it in. The problem with that is if you build any business on that, it just doesn't. And Tarkin is the one who says this a lot, and I think he's 100% right. Arbitrage does not scale. It does okay. not scale. So if you build an entire business model on that, it's, it, it, is, it is an Achilles heel. Um, so get used to good competition from the start, and I think you'll be better off. So I, I, I totally agree with where you're coming from. I, th- I think it was smart, honestly. Yeah, no, that's uh, Tark and I definitely agree on that whole, you know, wholeheartedly, um, mm-hmm. d- ba- dating back to conversations I had when he and I conversed in conviction, or uh, not conviction, sorry, quiet speculation years ago. So yeah, that I mean, that's been a business decision that I made. A long time before I even like formalized my business, it was something that I decided. And uh, I say, you know, like I, I, I'll dabble with arbitrage once in a while, but it's it's just yeah. not, yeah, it's not worth it. So, Zakil, you want the next one? <clears throat> Do you invest in collectibles in the same way that you would stocks and bonds in a traditional portfolio, or are you more so on the active management of kind of flipping as a side business? Because you know, obviously, there's like half of the it's kind of the i feel as though the hobby is kind of split you have people who are just actively flipping to make money and then you have people who are essentially just consuming uh very expensive cards and holding them for 10 years and you know getting out whenever they feel like they're done with the hobby i love this question Uh, and it's it's one of those like we're, I was mentioning how I love like the thought-provoking questions. I, this one could be a podcast of its own, and and probably you you guys make it made a whole series out of this. Essentially, I mean it's it's an awesome question. I I have historically always been an active flipper, like uh, management management of my inventory, sell it as fast as I can, fast whole times. Chris, I, I know you, you you're a huge advocate for that. I couldn't agree more with just the idea of hold times the longer the whole time the worse off you are uh that's where i've always been i will say 
that as my time available, my, my available time to dedicate to selling magic cards has changed over the years, especially more recently in these last, I would say, I don't know, ballpark at three years or so, mm-hmm. which is ironic because those are the same three years where I like grew my, my business, my Chicago style gaming business to actually flip cards more uh, in more volume. But in that same time, as I started doing that, I've actually seen more of an appeal to treating collectibles purely from like a investment standpoint. I, I think you called it an asset class and, um, and having like a, a collectibles portfolio on top of my other investments in stocks, bonds, et cetera. I don't, I will say it this way. I don't have something that's like formal. I don't, I don't look at the cards that I have in my collection. And we talked a lot at the beginning about collection versus inventory. I have a collection that is definitely, I would consider it like an investment from a pure liquidity standpoint that, you know, if, if, if you were to ask me, what's my net worth, I would include the value of my collection as part of that answer. Mm-hmm. But I would include, there's two pieces to that. I would include it at the buy list price, not at the, retail price and i don't treat those as appreciative like like, like from a stock standpoint it's like okay i bought square at a hundred dollars now it's 140 dollars, for example and and i'm up 40 bucks a share or something like that i don't look at it quite that same way certainly if i sold them i would treat it that way most likely uh but i i don't that's all i'm getting at here is i don't treat collectibles as an investment because i'm generally less confident in doing so they're they're not truly investments right like if you think of them fundamentally mm-hmm. they they're not actual like like financial investments <laughs> um and so define that well, out of curiosity define that what do you yeah, find yeah. an investment to be I, i'm not like i'm just genuinely curious yeah from my standpoint you know and i don't know i'm not a, i'm certainly not a financial advisor or anything of that nature but Something that doesn't actually have a true backing behind it, something like a trading card, sports card, et cetera, where there's there's no actual monetary like value associated with it other than just desirability or utility. Those to me don't those type of collectibles, any collectible really, doesn't actually represent a, a financial investment because you're not you're not guaranteed anything out of it I, I, i'm trying to say i think of how to even phrase this because that's not true you you are guaranteed the you know the tangible piece that you're holding in your hand um but like if you own a stock you know you own a piece of a company that's got true revenues and 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 they're they're presumably a company that you can trust and you're also backed by the fdic and things of that nature collectibles bitcoin all of these other places that are sort of these like cash escapes for lack of a better way to put it they don't feel like actual investments to me um i don't know i don't really do you, have a good do way you to consider with that framework do you consider gold to be an investment i do not and i know you know i know fundamentally on wall street it's it's a safe haven supposedly but i don't it, it it's totally contradictory to what i'm saying but i really don't believe in the gold backing very much either and so <laughs> um I don't either. Basically, just <laughs> yeah, basically completely contradictory to what I just said there, but I, I don't believe in that either. And so really, I think when it, what it comes down to for me is 
investments, whether they're financial investments in stocks or or holding a, I don't actually own any power, but I own a lot of unlimited duels and those have continued to appreciate. And, you know, I, I guess I would say diversifying my money is most important and, and diversifying into places that I know feel safe, right? Uh, like, like subjectively speaking to, to my, my opinion. Um, but yeah, other yeah. than that, oh, I, yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm just curious. I and I'm I. The only reason I challenge you that just because, um, not that I necessarily believe that collectibles are inherently more valuable than you know a piece of a business or anything, but I just find it interesting just to see people's thought processes on that. Um, yeah, it's 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 one that I admittedly probably need to spend more time on to have a true answer. So, no, and fair enough, fair enough. Um. And then just quickly, and you just mentioned unlimited duels, and we talked a little bit about this on the other cast, but just for the sake of kind of uh, going over each side, um, Mm -hmm. when you separate your business inventory and your collection, and from what I believe I've gathered in this conversation, your collection is just more so for fun, and it's it's kind of your personal relationship with the game. Um, Obviously, you're aware of the markets and what, you know, what cards are moving and all of that, but... um, of the unlimited duels that you hold or any of the more expensive cars that you hold is your, is your goal with those strictly financial? Like, are you mapping inputs to outputs or are you just like, okay, it is what I'm going to hold them when I'm done with them. I'm done kind of thing. <laughs> it's a good, yeah, it's a good question. You don't have I, to have um, an answer. No, no, I do. I do have an answer. I, I, I clearly explain my separation of collection and inventory. If I dive into the rabbit hole a step deeper, which is my collection, I do have exactly what you described, Zakiel. Is I have my decks that I that those are like representative of my connection to still playing the game, um, and they they of course have value associated with them. But I don't really, I don't even look at the value. I don't like plug them into Goldfish MTG Goldfish, for example, and be like, oh, this is the value of my deck. I don't even look at that stuff. Um, I do, however, have a, a collection, a safe that has all the stuff like unlimited duels, and really, a, it's just. It's a lot of reserve list stuff in that safe. Uh, I've got a handful of guys' cradles, judge foils, and non foils, and and you know just I would say a lot of older cards that are iconic reserve list. I've never owned a piece of Power Nine. I know we sh- I shared that with you. Um, it, it's something I've considered, and it's kind of crazy that I still have never done it. I, I it's like one of those few things where. Um, when I think back on all of it, I'm just surprised. But in terms of inputs, outputs, my safe, the stuff that's in my safe, I track, I track every purchase of magic that I make. I, I track every single one that comes in the door, whether it's for my collection and it goes in the safe, it goes into a deck, it goes into inventory. I track all of it. And I actually track it to the point where I know inventory versus collection, right? Like I, I can tell you all that stuff. Um, what I don't do is I don't really pay attention to the stuff that I put in the safe. Like I, you know, unlike stocks where I might check those daily or weekly or whatever and see how my stocks are doing. I, I don't even know exactly all the stuff that's in that safe. Like I, I could rattle off with some of it, but I could probably get you 60% of the way there. But um, generally speaking, I don't sit down and go through it very often or, or check the prices. I, I, I haven't probably done that in, three to five years to be honest with you it's been a long time so it's kind of a set it and forget it mentality with those so and almost like an investment almost like an investment yeah yeah you got me. <laughs> yeah 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 you got me uh 
No, it is. It's set it and forget it. And you're right. You got me. Uh, I, I, I will caveat that because I don't, the, the reason I say that I don't feel like they're investments is because most of what I hold in that safe is played stuff. I don't have a lot of near mint, like gradable. It's not optimized. You know, right. Yes. It's, yeah. it's, I would say probably 90% of what's in that safe, I would feel comfortable pulling out and putting into a deck if I needed to or wanted to. And so that's probably, that's why that's, I appreciate that you quote unquote got me because that helps me (laughs) narrow down why I don't feel like it's an investment though. You are probably entirely right. It is. Um, But yeah, like all those unlimited duels that are in there, I think maybe only I'm ballparking that I have something like, 40 unlimited duels if i was to guess and i would estimate maybe five of them are near mint um and i can tell you which ones those are if i went into the safe because they're in they're they're not just in top loaders they're in like uh sealed down cases with the screw but um anyway i I digress oh yeah no it again i the only reason i had set that up i was just very curious because i always every collector that i've come across like as similar as everyone is everyone's perspective is also just a bit different and i think the majority of collectors subconsciously agree as to what they're doing like everyone is fairly similar but how we get to the end point of the conversation is usually uh different so i'm just i was just curious is the reason i asked (laughs) yeah it got me um i know just from the, the limited conversations that we've had uh, in the past that you have an entrepreneurial background. So you're in the um, insurance and finan- insurance financial technology industry. What other industries do you find a traffic or pardon me? What other industries do you find? <laughs> and then like, what is your, if you were to set up your career, kind of what is your dream career, whether that's within, you know, having a side business or, you know, being uh, entirely removed from that and feel free to share as much or as little as you want. Yeah. Um, so I am, I mentioned earlier that I'm in insurance technology. I work as, I'm, I'm a director at a company and I work in API integrations specifically. So you'll, you can find that on my Twitter, my personal Twitter, I, I, all about, you can actually probably find the company that I work for on there. Cause I think I like broadcast that on there, but very proud of what I do and, and the work I do. It's, uh, my career has always been I would say the number one thing in terms of priority from like a, like a, I don't want to use the word pride standpoint. That's, that's like, that, I don't want to be like arrogant, but I just, it's the thing I care the most about that isn't family and friends, if that makes sense. Um, I, I put my career on a pedestal and I, I'm very proud of the work I do and, you know, the expertise that I've developed in that. I work in insurance and I've been in insurance my entire career. Actually, I was my, my mother was or is not, not was, but is still 40 years later, 41 years, something like that, an insurance agent. She sells insurance, uh, specifically commercial insurance. And so I grew up around it. I she's been in it since I was, you know, since before I was born. And I always kind of joke that I was like learning to file when right after I could walk, I was learning to file paperwork because <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not super exaggerated. I remember going into her, she used to work for the, when I was like a kid, a kid, kid, five years old type of thing. She was working for this massive agency, probably a couple hundred employees and they eventually got acquired. But I can remember going into their office as a kid and 
like just being so impressed by these cat these file cabinets that were you know lit- literally 20 times the, my height like you'd have to get up on like a ladder to get up to the top shelves to get stuff down and um it, it, i don't know why but just you know growing up around her with insurance really inspired me to be passionate about that industry so that's kind of part one of this answer um i, I love the insurance industry it's it's the one that i'm probably most attracted to from an entrepreneurial standpoint from a career standpoint i don't know that i'll ever leave it i would be you know if you if, uh, maybe i'll have to like screen cap this or not i guess not screen cap <laughs> but uh record this for myself in in 10 or 20 years to see if i'm still in the industry but i would be shocked not to be i'll put it that way if if i look back in 2040 for example i would be really surprised if i'm not in insurance uh in terms of like the entrepreneurial side and like what where i want my career to go and and kind of blending those together so i never saw myself on the the agency side of insurance uh, basically selling insurance policies i never I, I don't like sales it was never something as even as a kid that i i had any sort of interest or passion about it, it frankly sales scared me when i was a kid because the uncertainty of month to month not really knowing what your income is going to look like is I don't live like that. I'm, I'm I'm a very kind of disciplined person, and so it's it would be hard for me to to move into something like that. And so, like what my mom does, I have this like utmost respect for because she she lives and breathes that and has for literally her entire career and entire life essentially. Uh, so it shied me away from that side in, in growing up around the agency world, and I went into the corporate side, and I've worked for. Some of the largest insurance carriers that you've you know nationally companies that you know of nationally that are advertised all over the place and uh, i found my way through big corporations and then into a small software provider based out of israel and uh, i've kind of seen a lot of different parts of the insurance industry landscape more on that corporate side of the fence uh, especially in technology and so if i was to say like where where would i love my career to go from here i'm very invested with my current company i love my company that i work for i love the job that i do there the the vision that i have and the company has and you know how i contribute to that interestingly enough i'm actually evolving more into a sales role in my current responsibilities i got promoted back in march and the promotion came with this set of responsibilities to develop a sales channel so that has been one of the both scariest and most, I guess, eye-opening things in my entire life. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm excited to see that through. And I don't see that, you know, knock on wood, I don't see that ending anytime soon. Four, five, six years down the road, maybe I'll be in a position where that's a different answer. But um, at some point later in my career, I would like to potentially start an agency. And the way I would probably go about doing that is uh we've talked about this my mom and i have talked about this potentially buying her agency and you know basically kind of just ha- handing it off and and keeping it in the family so that that's that's an area that i could see myself going in the future and and really applying a technology lens to her agency because her agency is so um you know it's with with her reputation of 40 years in the industry she hasn't needed to it's it's actually a good comparison to tcg player what we were talking about earlier like my mom (laughs) is established she doesn't need the technology world because she's 
her clients trust her above anything else and and she's their go-to and you know there, there's so many comparisons we could we could draw back to tcg player but i would i would see her business a lot differently than she sees it currently and you know somewhere in there there's this like perfect world i think where what she does is so valuable but it's also it's also because of her right like it's it's the value that she brings to the table um, and so when she wants to retire, that piece of it, it won't be lost because she's trained other people on that stuff in her agency as well, but it will be harder to do because her name alone is, it brings so much weight to the table. Uh, whereas I, I see a whole different side of a agency world of, of in, investing in technology, automation, um, probably being a little bit more regional or even national as opposed to just working in the chicagoland area all these i have i have a whole huge like vision for what that could look like but um it's a long conversation so oh that's amazing man yeah that sounds like you have at least somewhat of a pretty legitimately and well thought pretty legitimate and well thought out structure as to you know where you want to go i mean you got passion damn (laughs) (laughs) i do have a lot of passion for insurance i i i'm the there's probably like i'll jokingly say there's probably like 20 people in the world who say they love insurance and i'd be one of them (laughs) Um, my mom would probably also be one of them which is kind of hilarious it runs in the family but yeah i mean it's it's one of the it's it's one of the ironic things or or not ironic but just kind of paradoxical things that you know insurance is typically such a pain in the butt and and (laughs) i actually really love the industry though i actually just thought of this and i don't know if you can answer this or want to, but as far as ensuring collections, um, I think you have actually talked about this in limited capacity before, but yeah. um, do you ensure your collection and you know where should people look to find resources if they're interested in doing the same? Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, it's funny. I I really wish that this would have taken more of a foothold when I, when I, uh, invested into it. So when I was writing for quiet speculation, one of the, one of the articles, it's, it's actually probably the article I'm most proud of that I've ever produced. It's still out on their website. And I, I know it's had a, a really good showing in terms of just uh, a reception, I guess is a better word to say, like it was well received in the community. Uh, I wrote a two part article for quiet spec about ensuring collections and to answer your, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, no, you're good. I, 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 <laughs> I, let me clarify this. I did insure my collection for a couple of years. I most recently let the policy lapse this year in March because I started to realize I wanted to get out of Chicago style gaming. And I felt like, I felt like I'd move my cards out of my inventory fast enough that I wouldn't need the insurance any longer. So I did lapse the, the policy. Um, and to answer your question, Zakil, Collect Insure is the name of the company. They are tremendous. You guys collect spec. I think would you guys should reach out to them because you guys have a lot of a lot of awesome synergy. I could put you in contact with them. I still have their uh, their information, but yeah, they are a Collect Insure is a tremendous company. It's a small company for sure. I, I you know I don't I don't know the specifics on size and everything, but they I do know that they're a very hands on kind of a, a personal touch point type of organization, which I really value given, you know, what we're dealing with, with collectibles. Um, I don't have a big collection, right? Like my inventory is not more than 
more than like 50k or whatever it's yeah, that's not yeah. true. It's, it's, more, it's a little bit more than that but it, it, it's not <laughs> like i guess to restate this it's not like i'm out there with a ton of sets of alpha for example and i'm sitting on a whole house worth of magic <laughs> you um but but if I was, I would feel extraordinarily confident in working with Collect Insure and and just the people there. They're really great people. So, yeah, awesome, dude. I've never heard of this. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that article just really Pardon quick. Me? That article you can you can Google that up. I mean, if if you're looking for it, it's it's a really good ever evergreen piece of content because it. I, I as long as collect insure doesn't go out of business then that <laughs> that article is very relevant because i do talk about i interviewed a director of product there if they wanted to search it what would they look up qs uh yeah you would probably need to search quiet speculation insure your collection that'll get it done it's a really good article too I just I just googled that as I said that quiet speculation ensure your collection it's a two parter and they show up first and second respectively they're they're right there so awesome. I would I would honestly argue even if you don't do it it's good to know it exists like at the very least yes yes I, I, I yeah knowing that your collection is not covered by your homeowner's policy or renter's policy or condo policy is an extremely important thing if you're listening to this podcast to take away from it because a lot of people don't know that a lot of people you know they just assume that their contents in their home are always covered by insurance and the reality is your contents are mostly covered but there are things on your policy called scheduled personal property which cover a lot of collectibles, but it, it turns out trading cards are typically not included in that. Uh, so if you're insured by any of the major insurance companies in the US, Allstate, Geico, Liberty Mutual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, most of them, if not all of them, do not include coverage for trading cards. So very good to know. I didn't I did not I had an insurance previously <laughs> with every company, but I didn't know any of that. So that is some quality quality information <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely it's uh it's one of those little known things i would say there's a couple of horror stories out there in the magic community and um i'm not gonna we, we don't have to dive into that but yeah. the, i'll just say the short is don't don't get yourself in a position where you have a really large collection and then have like a house fire or something because um you you, you will be really upset with what the outcome will be mm-hmm. and one last question before we ask our uh kind of final questions uh we had talked about this previously and i know you had shared this uh and kind of your plan for the next 12 to 18 months um you are possibly interested in pursuing an mba and Mm -hmm. it's i feel like an mba is a very interesting degree that has people have a lot of mixed feelings about and circumstantially is very different if you go to a an elite top 10, top 20 program, you know, your outcome is much different than someone who goes to a smaller regional school. Um, so I would just be curious to ask, what do you think an impact or, and, and, and actually one other thing, it's all, it was surprising for me to read because you already seem somewhat versed in the realm of various businesses. So not that I think it was negative or positive, but what do you think, what impact do you think an MBA would have on your career? and future businesses and you know what attracts you to that idea that makes any sense yeah no it does totally um first of all i appreciate it thank you for the kind words there compliment um i so there's 
two parts to this answer that I'm kind of forming up in my head. So the first part is I'm going to address what you just said, because I, I agree with it hundred percent. If, if you end up doing an MBA or really just any sort of post-grad studies, the, the, the kind of data, I guess, shows that if you go to one of those like top 25 programs in the world, or, or even if you're just talking more specific to continents, uh, top 25 in the U S for example, the, the outcome is much stronger than the other, you know, 5,000 or whatever universities that are out there that you could go to. There's probably, probably 50,000 universities I don't even know these days. But um, I think the reason for that is because the top programs, they don't just teach you things, but they actually develop networks for you that end up going yeah. on to do really tremendous things right like i talked about the idea of thought-provoking conversations i brought that up i think twice this is the third time so i got the hat trick the, the <laughs> idea of going to an mba going to do an mba or any sort of post-grad study for me anyway is really contingent on the thought-provoking side of it it's not so much because i want to go back and learn advanced finance techniques or advanced whatever techniques uh, management i don't know um it, it really comes down to meeting other like-minded you know thoughtful kind of insightful knowledgeable whatever adjective you want to use there people and meeting those people and developing networks and developing a rapport and really seeing other sides to the coin of business i i have historically felt my my wife calls me a know-it-all, right? And I have always <laughs> there's there's truth to it. I act like a know-it-all in a lot of ways. I'm I'm kind of a jerk sometimes about things, and I have tried to become more modest about that in recent, specifically recent months. I, I would like to say recent years, but I can't because I <laughs> I haven't I haven't done it right. I, uh, but in recent months, it's with my new role, I mentioned I, I got promoted in March and I took on a role to build a sales channel. And I can just tell you this, that anytime in your career, when you're 10 or more years into your career to date myself, I'm, I'm over that threshold and you take on something brand new for the, like literally the first time you've ever done it. It is a really intimidating thing. I, I would have never known that because I, to be honest with you, I never really even thought about it. But now here I am six months into this role that I have no experience on. I'm basically an entry-level person trying to build something from the ground up that I don't know much, if anything, about. And I think an MBA gives me an opportunity to start to see those other sides of industries, other sides of disciplines you know so like in this case i'm building a i'm i'm assigned to to cultivate a sales channel so meeting somebody who's in sales in an mba program would be a huge value add for me because i could bounce bounce ideas off of them or pick their brain about things things that i don't know and as i said about this whole know it all thing historically i used to just be like oh well i'll just go figure it out right like i'll go google it or i'll go youtube it or i'll talk to people and um Otherwise, I just know the answer and I would find the answer myself. And it's not that easy anymore when you're talking, when you get to a certain point in your career, it's not as easy as just like, okay, I just need to go find the answer to this, this 
this problem, right? Like I need to go solve for X and that'll give me the answer and I'm done, right? It's, it's a much bigger thing when you start to try and build things from the ground up because solving for X may answer one little tiny piece, but when you start to look at it at scale, it's, um, you, know, you have to bite, there's you basically have to slice it up and create bite size chunks. And anyway, the MBA, I think for me is going to give me a lot more perspective because I've always been isolated in this like little, this little technology, like insurance technology bubble. And I, I don't have insights into other elements of business like sales, marketing. Um, I could go on, the list is longer than that. But so anyway, that's the big, that's the big value for me. Yeah, that that was a much more thought out answer than I thought I was going to get. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> happy. That's incredible. Yeah, no, that and oh man, I, honestly, I feel like that just speaks to just life experience and knowledge of of just the arena that you're entering. So yeah, wow. Um, to be able to share that, right? Like, if I have all my life experiences and I can go meet other people who are open to sharing that, I think that's a that's that should be what you know. I, again, I I haven't done an MBA, right? I'm like on the horizons thinking about doing it, but I feel like one of the big, a, a, totally a personal opinion. This is just my suggestion is if you're going to do an MBA, go into it with the mentality that you're going to build a network and that you're going to learn real life applications. Not that you're going to like go advance your knowledge of accounting, for example, because maybe that's relevant to your job, but at the end of the day, is that going to really take you to the next level in your career? maybe but like probably not but if you go and you meet five other people who are in the accounting industry of some in some fashion and maybe they work in different different uh industries entirely but they're also in accounting now you're going to suddenly learn and be exposed to different ways to report gaap or uh, et cetera, et cetera. i mean there, there's a ton of them right so that's that's the way i would look at this is is it's more of a life experiences uh gaining gaining those those shared experiences as opposed to just like going back to the paper and pencil and taking a test. I like that perspective a lot because um, I've, I've thought of doing the same thing myself and I've had a couple of friends who have done it um, and I've worked with people who have and have either started the program and didn't finish or finished their program. And I think that perspective is really important because many people, and again, speaking slightly from a earlier career perspective, is that I feel as though people will go, they they feel like there's this linear progression to their careers and linear progression to life, which I think is somewhat true. But again, the reality of maybe you get a graduate degree earlier on and you're now $100,000 in debt and you're now trying to find your footing in the world. And if the job offer doesn't come because you don't have too much experience, yes. you're kind of overeducated and under experienced, you fit, you're I can, kind of in this weird limbo where. You're not senior enough to be management. You're not, or you're a little bit too senior to just be an entry-level analyst. You know, how does that go? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, I was just, I really like your kind of perspective on that because it's not something I hear too much. Can I throw one final thought there that you just triggered for me, Zakil? No, no, you're not allowed. <laughs> not allowed. <laughs> oh, man. Darn it. All right, I'll make it quick though. Um, if you're in that limbo, particularly the one you just described, not not experienced enough to go into management, but like too good at everything else that you do as like a quote, I'll call it like a quote unquote worker bee. That's, some, that's a term that I used to call myself. If you're in that position, the linear piece, if you want to get to management, you have to find a way to break it. And 
linear progression in careers, in my opinion, is the fun. That's that's fundamentally how every career is laid out in front of us. But it's the people who decide that they don't really like linear progression that are the ones that excel. And those are the people who go start businesses. Those are the people who you know, make their big jump and they find someone that'll take a chance on them and believe in them, things of that nature. I was very fortunate. And, and I will tell you, it's not, this isn't something that like you can just like go out and do, but I was very fortunate. The company I now work for took a chance on me. They knew my experience. I knew the CEO of the company from a relationship. And this is the, this is the point. That's the word foreshadowing relationships. They knew me from a prior work experience with, with me in a project that I worked on as a partner, right? I was working for another company, partner with the, the company I work for now. Long story short, they reached out to me seven years after I worked with them. That's how long they remembered my name from LinkedIn. And you know, wow. just the CEO remembered me seven years later when his business was ready to take a step into API integrations. He remembered my name, reached out to me, and the, and the rest is history. But the point is, it's a relationship. I built a strong rapport. I put my nose to the to the grindstone. I worked hard. I I built good relationships, both both from like a personable standpoint, personable standpoint, but also more importantly, I let my work do the talk, right? And if you work hard, people notice that. And I think that's something that we we lose sight of as a as a society because it's not tangible. You don't, you know, it's one thing to get like your I don't know, 5% raise or get like a compliment or a, a, a thank you note or whatever the case may be in your job. But it's another thing when you do that work and you tell yourself, I did a good job and you know you did a good job and you can say that. And if you do that repetitively, whether or not you get the thank you emails or the promotions or whatever the case may be, people take note of that. And whether it's the person that's your boss or the person you're working with across the table who works for an entirely different company, it comes full circle sometimes and things great things can happen. And I, I, I'm saying that from experience. I was very fortunate with what happened, but I think a lot of it was because I worked my butt off and and, and I, I I built strong relationships and worked hard and the rest kind of just fit fit into its, you know, uh, the pieces fit the fit into their own slots or what I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but it I all came. Yeah, I feel you. So awesome. No, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Wolf, would you uh, like to yeah. Yeah. Moving into dominating the conversation. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, dude. I, I had my time. Don't you worry. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is good. Um, just kind of closing out with our, our ending questions here. Um, and going back to magic, where do you see the future of the hobby going in the next five years? Uh, and I, I have a sub question to this in terms of because I know we've had a conversation before, uh, and I just kind of want your general opinion. Like I, I know we in like private DMs we've discussed that like all, our generation currently or generations that are now gaining uh, affluence in terms of a monetary perspective are monetizing all of our hobbies. Uh, and I think that's yep. something that uh, Magic has really been capitalizing on recently. We've discussed that. Um, where do you see that kind of going in the next five years? Yeah, I think it's just at the forefront of that. I think, you know, per our conversations, Chris, I, I really believe that that's just starting to take off. And I think these next five years are going to be no different. I, I think that there's two reasons for that. I think one is because the game of Magic is 
you know, it pulls you in and it's not easy to break away from. I want to break away from it right now because it's <laughs> overwhelming me and it's like impossible. I still love it. I, I enjoy the people, the, 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 the game itself. I love playing it. I mean, I, I, there's too much to magic to, for people to like let go of it. So I think that the next five years, we're going to continue to see the same thing we've seen in the last, call it, I don't know, it's probably been the last five years roughly where the game will continue to grow uh, you know the the player base I think is also going to continue to grow, and that's the second kind of part of my answer is I think in the next five years the digital side of Magic is going to grow tremendously. I think what they're doing with Arena is phenomenal, and I I really believe that COVID is accelerating, like many businesses, it's accelerating that transition in what might have taken ten to twenty years. It's now going to take ten to twenty months type of thing, but I yeah. think Magic di- digital Magic is here to stay, and I. I think you're going to be hard pressed to in five years, you're going to be hard pressed to, to really understand that this game used to just be exclusively played in paper. I think there's going to be so many players that come into it from the digital world that it's, it's going to look totally different because of that. Um, I think it's all good things. So I think that the monetization side, whether, whether you're a content creator, a vendor, a player, I think all that stuff is going to continue to grow. You know, if you're the, one of the big frustrations out there these days is that it's an esport and the player base wants better prize pools. I do think that's coming. I think the problem is Magic's not an easy game to watch. And what they've done with Arena is starting to improve that a little bit. So, you know, more to come on that. But I, I think that's all realistic. And, uh, lastly, I, I think just monetization-wise, I think because of the growth that we'll see, some of the shift in reprint strategy and print-to-demand and all these things that have happened over the last couple of years, I think vending is going to continue to be more and more competitive and more difficult. Uh, I think there's going to continue to be this like separation of the big vendors are going to continue to cement themselves as even bigger vendors, while the the like small vendors are going to get either like absorbed and like merge into medium size and maybe become a big vendor, or they're just going to go out of business and end up liquidating. Uh, and I think that that's going to create this kind of disparity where you're going to have like the, the card kingdoms of the world who will still continue to have their dominant presence, but that the smaller vendors are going to be less and less prevalent. And so like TCG player, the number of sellers on there is eventually going to start to contract as a result of that. Um, mm-hmm. I just think I think it's going to be you're going to see more people reselling their cards that are players and they're just selling it out of their collections and less people who are going to continue to be kind of the mid-sized speculator vendors who pay retail yeah. and and deal in that in that space the space that I think all three of us probably deal in. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, what role do you foresee Magic playing in your life uh, in another ten years, if any? <laughs> In a perfect world, so I have a 16-month-old son, and he's already grabbing magic cards now, so I would love to be teaching him and playing with him in 10 years. I think that would be a total full circle, bring my <laughs> bring my, my love of magic full circle. So that that is really the only answer that I can give right now. I have no idea otherwise. I think that is more than enough. Uh, and just I, 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 that's adorable. Uh, what is the what is one piece of advice just to close out on uh, that you would give an a, an aspiring TCG financier? All right, so I'm going to give my controversial. I just tweeted this. I talked to you guys about a precast, and I'm yeah. going to say it as my answer because I actually I, I'll give try I'll try to keep this to three minutes or less and wrap this up. The 
I, I tweeted this short, just a few days before this, before we recorded this, that I believe that if you're, if you're getting into finance, it's really important to go in eyes wide open and be very cognizant that there are different stages of MTG finance. The content creation out there, I think, often leads people to believe that finance is just this really easy way to make money. And the reality is it is not. You have to put in work. You have to be smart about it. You have to be accurate, like meaning that you're buying cards that really do actually go up in price or you know, you have a, a legitimate out that you can still break even or make money on. Uh, and all of those things don't get hardly any attention because they're not sexy. They don't draw clicks and so on and so forth. Uh, so that would be my advice. Be be cognizant of the fact that the the content you consume in the finance arena as you start to dabble in it isn't always, in fact, most of the time, it's not designed to make you learn the actual fundamentals that will make you profitable. It's more or less designed to get you to read the, the article. And um, so you got to be cognizant and and know who to trust. And, and there's a few people out there and a few communities out there. Well, really one or two communities that I, I I believe in tremendously and that's ban and conviction. And um, otherwise I, I just would say be cautious. So awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This has been, I think we're going on of just about two hours. So thank you so much for your time, Chris. We really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah, no, thank you guys. I, it was a great conversation. I appreciate it. I know that uh, your future, your immediate future is is, uh, it's going to be a bit different from what I think people are used to. But if people want to follow you and contact you, um, where would they go about doing that? Yeah, I'll still be around uh, in both Conviction Gaming and then on Twitter. So if you want to find me on Twitter, you can go to at ShyStyleGaming. That's my kind of magic magic personal twitter handle you can also find our conviction gaming content at conviction mtg on twitter conviction gaming unfortunately didn't fit so it's at conviction mtg and then generally speaking i like i said i'll still be around in conviction and i'll still still be around in the band discord so uh, if you want to find those you can find our website at convictiongaming.com it's got the link to join our our conviction gaming discord that is all free now we're moving that to a free site primarily because i just won't be able to keep up with the content so i don't want to take people's money when i can't deliver things back for them um, so that's free to join but there'll still be good conversation there and i'm going to go ahead and give the the band shout out because i can uh, definitely check out ban uh, i the there, it's a patreon it's two dollars to join but it's the patreon.com slash ban underscore community you guys rock so I appreciate you man Oh, I got you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the, those are the man is the best place on uh, on the on the planet currently to get your MTG finance content. So, I I can't pitch that better, man. <laughs> it, it it's true. I don't know what the best is on the moon, but on Earth, it's for sure banned. So, <laughs> I appreciate it, man. All right. Well, this has been another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast. Um, you can find me, Zakil, online at Rainy Day Collectibles. You can find my co-host, Chris, at Wolf of Tin Street online. And this podcast on collect under collect underscore spec on Twitter and on my YouTube channel, uh, Rainy Day Collectibles. Um, you can also um, 
Yeah, no, that's it actually. Uh, so, <laughs> if you like this episode, please reach out to Chris. We thank him. Thank you so much for coming I on. We really enjoy the conversation. This is, I think, one of the uh, highlight casts that I'll probably be revisiting every now and then, just to get little pieces of information for myself. Uh, and moreover, and you know, overall, I think we just appreciate you in the hobby, and you know, we're really glad to have the conversation. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. Cheers, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>